enough to be alcoholics and in recovery. Some of us, of us are lucky enough to be in Al-Anon and in recovery. I won't go into the Alatots and Pups and Alouette, but some of us are discovering a, a new subculture within our, uh, our, our grand tradition, and that is the concern about adult children of alcoholics. It took me seven years into sobriety to dare to ask some questions, which led to my knowledge that I belong in that group. And uh, I'm proud to say that uh, a couple of my kids are involved in it, and I'm, I'm delighted that they, there is help for those of us who have that special concern. Because of general interest in this field, uh, a person with care and experience and articulateness in presenting this aspect of our conjoint concerns is here to talk with us today. Bill is a board-certified gynecologist, and he's also been a professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Emory University until recently. He's been a, a speaker at many medical and community groups and spoken on alcoholism, drug rehabilitation, and holistic concerns about the total person and the community of those in which his life is embedded. He received his B.A. from Emory, his M.D. from the Medical College of Georgia. I'm proud to say I have a chance to, to teach there now, having been given an opportunity for re-entry thanks to this program. And Bill has honored us by saying he'll he'll speak to us today. And this makes this makes four great speakers we've had. And we'll have until uh, 25 after or or uh, or 530. And some may want to stay and ask you questions. Maybe everybody will. Well, we're welcoming Bill. Thank you, Doctor. That was quite a nice introduction. I appreciate that very much. Being here in Savannah is rather a poignant experience for me and certainly is bringing up a lot of um, old memories because, you see, I grew up in this city and left here over 30 years ago. And I really have never lived back here since. And so to come back and to go through these streets and these and to see this city is really stirring up a lot of stuff that I thought I had dealt with many times in the past. Um, I need to tell you a little bit about myself then and why I'm up here talking about this particular issue. I went through this um, 18 years here in, in Savannah needing to excel in some way uh, feeling that no matter what I did, it was never good enough. Uh, continuing to strive to work hard, uh, to pick an area of expertise in which I could excel to give me some kind of feeling of self-worth. And I sort of chose the academia and got very much involved with being graduating with honors and everything that I did. I went on to Emory University. Uh, went on to medical school, graduated with honors, and then a series of events I got into the academia that Dr. Geller was talking about. 
it's very interesting because her talk today certainly stirred up a lot within me too. Because I was the person she was describing, I kept wondering how she got my case history. Um, but the interesting thing is that 10 or 12 years ago, you see, I was brought before this austere committee and the criticism that I had, the constructive criticism was that was my performance was not what it should be. And of course, at that particular time, the treatment was to withdraw my monetary drawing account. <laughs> now, if you want to really get somebody's attention, you take their money away. Uh, so this was the treatment that I received at, at Emory University, but we didn't know. We didn't know at that time. So what did I do? I mean, what was the natural thing that anybody would do under that circumstance? You try harder. You just try harder. I was doing everything I knew to do. And I felt like, you know, I had, I had gone as far as I could go with academics. I was living in the very nicest place in Atlanta. I had a beautiful wife. I had lovely children. And my life was falling apart. I had studied about alcoholism in, in medical school. I had seen alcoholism in my family. And that was never going to happen to me. But the one thing that I did know was that it was happening to me. How the disease affected me was, was this way. I did not know that there was anything that could be done about it. This is how it affected me, was the total hopelessness and the helplessness. I had no trouble recognizing what my problem was. I did have trouble recognizing that my problem had anything to do with what was happening in my life situation, you see. What was happening out there was the plot that Dr. Geller was talking about, you see. Uh, and the other tragedy of the disease, how it affected me, was that I did not know anything could be done about it. Now, through some unconditional love, uh, I came home one day, all the way home, saying, what is the tragedy of the day going to be today? And the more you concentrate on that, you're never disappointed. Um, so the tragedy of the day was that my lovely wife met me at the door and she said, Bill, I really don't understand what your problem is, but I've made an appointment and we're going to go see a physician. I said, I am not going to see a psychiatrist. She said, this is not a psychiatrist. I said, who have you made me an appointment with? She said, a gynecologist. <laughs> well, the sweet thing has really flipped her lid now. So, But, of course, she knew she could see more about what was going on than I knew about what was going on. And my dear friend, Dr. Hunter, had just, had just started uh, a recovery hospital in Atlanta, and we went to talk with him. And I don't remember anything that was said, but I did go in for some treatment. And this was 10 years ago. And so I came back, and I did go back into the academia, and I did the things that I was told to do 
in the uh, program of recovery, and things did get better. I got back on speaking terms with my family and my wife, and the practice started building up again. And for all practical purposes, things looked perfect. I mean, I was I was abstinent. Uh, I was going to meetings. I was extremely involved. Everything I could get involved in. In other words, my compulsions had definitely changed from one area into another. I was compulsively involved then, you see. And uh, the messages that you see I kept telling myself were, try harder, do more, and you'll be okay. So I tried harder, and I did more, and I didn't get okay. And I went to meetings, and I went to conferences, and I conducted classes, and I gave talks, and I led groups, and I did more, and I did more, and I felt worse and worse. And I got to a point where I feel that if I had not gotten into some individual psychic or psychiatric counseling, that I probably would have been one of those byproducts of burnout or a nervous breakdown or whatever you want to call it, whatever's fashionable that week to call it. And it was through, you see, this, this interaction with a knowledgeable other person who could see more of what was going on that I began to understand that I also had another disease of codependency that had never been addressed and never been treated. So this disease of codependency did not make sense for me to go to Al-Anon because I was not living with someone who was drinking. So this disease of codependency did not make very much sense for me to go to Al-Anon because I was not treating alcoholics per se. So there was really nothing then in the codependency Al-Anon program that I could identify with, you see. And I feel that's one of the biggest keys that we have in recovery today is what can we identify with? You see, I was a newcomer at this meeting in Los Angeles nine years ago. And that was a turning point in my life because I, that was the first time after a year of recovery that I began to relate a little bit with what was going on and to be able to identify with someone who was making their life work. So it was a big turning point. And this whole idea of being able to identify with what's going on is the key, you see, that is an entry point into change in our life. So we're talking today about a situation that many of us can identify with that I promise you can be a very significant entry point into some additional change into your life. And the reason is because we can call ourselves, many of us, adults who grew up in a home that was affected by alcoholism. So this is a little bit about what I want to talk to you about this afternoon is maybe as many as 30 million children are out there growing up in misery today. And there are certainly many hundreds of thousands of adults who grew up in these homes that were affected by alcoholism or some type of severe dysfunction who are unhappy, who are going through burnout, who are crystallized and stuck into compulsive behavior uh, 
patterns, who are unhappy, and they don't know what their problem is. What we are talking about then today are two things, family dysfunction and the disease of codependency. Now, I, you remember I said disease. The greatest thing that ever happened in alcoholism recovery was the fact that alcoholism itself was declared a disease. And there are many people who feel that the disease of codependency should be considered a disease process. Jack, would you turn on that projector, please? What do we mean when we say disease, then? Um, we can probably leave the lights just the way they are. A disease we can classify then as any state with characteristic forms or anything that limits our potential for expression. So if we're talking about disease limiting, what are we talking about generally? Wellness. Wellness in contradistinction would be creating a state where the individual can reach his or her full potential on the physical level, the mental level, or the spiritual level. Then most of us can understand that the disease of addiction is, is characterized by the compulsion, by the denial and delusion. It's repetitive, compulsive behavior. And for my purposes, what I would like for you to think about is that addiction is a disease of feelings. Because most individuals begin drinking or using drugs to medicate their feelings. In counter-distinction, then, the disease of codependency is a response to an unhealthy situation and characterized by being totally occupied with something that's going on outside of yourself. In other words, if you wanted to say one word about codependency, you could sum it up and say, codependency is a situation in which people feel stuck. They do not feel they have a choice. And the reason they don't feel like they have a choice is that their whole center of interest is outside of themselves. And I think for one thing to think about is that the whole situation of codependency is a disease of relationships. A disease of relationships. If further broken down into the co-alcoholic who is in this relationship by choice, such as a spouse, and the para-alcoholic who is in the relationship as a if you pardon the expression, victim, uh, such as a child. Why don't we review a little bit of the dynamics that most of us are familiar with that are going on in the family situation. And over here, when we are talking about codependent, I want you to put yourself, put yourself, the spouse or the child that might be living with a chemically dependent person. The chemically dependent person we know is dealing with feelings now of shame and guilt. And what's the difference between a feeling of shame and a feeling of guilt? Well, guilt is a feeling over something you have done. But shame is a feeling over what you are. And there's a lot of difference. And this is what the dependent is feeling. Now, it's feeling remorse and worthlessness. But what is the behavior? The self-righteousness, the blaming others. Now, if you are the codependent, the child, the spouse around this individual, what are you going to feel? Guilt, hatred, anger, anger, self-doubt. 
The pendant, of course, is feeling the fear, the anxiety, the tension, and, of course, medicating those feelings. But what is the behavior? Aggressiveness, angry, hostile behavior. Now, if you are the individual that is living with that kind of behavior, what are you experiencing? Fear. The dependent is feeling helpless, but the behavior is controlling others, making demands, shunning responsibility. Now, you are the person who is living with that behavior. How do you feel? You feel helpless and confused, beginning to doubt your own sanity. The dependent is feeling pain and hurt, but the behavior is abusive, mental abuse, physical abuse. We're finding more and more the physical abuse in families that is not talked about and suppressed. The mental abuse that is not talked about and suppressed. Well, now, if you are living with that kind of behavior, what's going on in you? You do feel very hurt and very turned off. The dependent is feeling loneliness. And gosh knows, one word that might sum up uh, chemical dependency is the feeling of loneliness. But what do you do? You reject those around you and withdraw even further. Now, if you're living with that kind of behavior, how do you feel? You feel lonely and rejected in that cold, silent avoidance. The dependent, of course, has these feelings of low self-worth, but the behavior that covers up that is the grandiose behavior or the very critical behavior. Now, if you're the person who is living with that constant critical behavior, then your reaction, of course, is very, very low self-worth. The dependent can survive only by continuing to medicate his or her feelings. The dependent can only survive by further withdrawing. The codependent, whether this be the spouse or the children, can survive only by enabling, making excuses, uh, assuming more and more responsibility, taking over more and more control, retaliating. But through all of this, the major thing that happens with the people around the dependent is that they begin to abdicate their own needs. They do not know what their needs are. They do not know that their needs can be met. And let me tell you this. The young man who was talking about depression tonight, if you don't know what your needs are and you're not getting your needs met in life, you're depressed and you don't know why. Virginia Satir feels that every type of family situation that comes to her attention is dealing with only four major parameters. It's not as complicated as we usually make it, but she feels that every family that she classifies as dysfunctional is dealing with individual feelings of self-worth, how that family communicates with each other, what they communicate about, the rules that they hold on to, that make that family situation work, and how they interact with each other and the community in which they live. Now, if you want to have some type of idea about what kind of family situation you grew up in, 
then ask yourself these questions about your family. Does it feel good to you to live in your family? Did you feel that you were living with friends and people who loved you and trusted you? Was it fun and exciting to be a member of your family? If 10% of you can answer yes to all of those questions, then you probably would fit into what we call a healthy family situation. We are talking about here perhaps 30 to 40% of the, Ameri- of the North American families that would definitely fit into a dysfunctional situation. I'll go on to tell you what this dysfunction is. With most of the families, uh, 50% maybe in between. The healthy families are ideally those that encourage wholeness, that prepare the individual members to be able to step out and stand alone. Whereas when we talk about a dysfunctional family, we're talking about family situations which pass on the same type of inconsistency generation after generation. Rigidity, and inability for the individual members to stand alone. Now, what makes up a dysfunctional family? Any type of severe or mental illness in the family, an absent parent, and more and more today, parents who are single parents who are raising families. I see many, many examples of this, and the only major obvious dysfunction are religious extremes, very crystallized religious beliefs, but then the whole area of addiction or alcoholism. You see, most of us can identify a dysfunction in our family if we had a parent that that obviously drank. It is very difficult sometimes for us to identify that we have a problem or a dysfunctional family if the addiction was several generations removed. But I'll show you a little bit later that sometimes the second or third generations are more severely affected by family dysfunction than the first generation. So, there are several areas that we begin to look at in a family situation to judge whether these family situations are healthy or dysfunctional. And I want you to sort of read through these, and we'll breeze through these a little bit more quickly tonight. Basically, in the area of unity, the healthy family sees itself as a special unit which is open and flexible, but it has individuals who make up that unit. Whereas in a dysfunctional family, there is no sense of belonging. There are really no boundaries, but yet the whole situation seems to be a loose rigidity, if you can conceive of it that way. But usually in the dysfunctional family, they are protecting some type of family secret and, of course, are in a constant state of fear of any growth or change. Under boundaries, the healthy family has pretty clear distinctions about who's the mother, who's the father, uh, who's the grandparents, and who the children are. And people learn appropriate roles of behavior and age-appropriate activities. Whereas in the dysfunctional uh, family, there is almost uh, emotional incest. Uh, the parents triangle the children in to meet their own uh, emotional needs, and there's no clear distinction 
between who's playing parent and who's playing child. And in all of these families, you're going to find that the children are either over-mature for their age or markedly under-mature for their age. You never find an age-mature person or child in a, in a dysfunctional family. It's so often when you're working with recovering people, they'll say, well, I have a very mature 16-year-old. Wait a minute. You've got a sexually active 16-year-old. You don't have a very mature 16-year-old. You know. Um, in communications, um, within the family that is healthy, you don't get these double-bind messages. The, the messages that you feel and that you hear are usually congruent. And this is why, through the communications in the family, you learn to solve problems. In the dysfunctional family, what you learn is to not talk and not feel and not communicate any of those feelings to one another. Therefore, if you don't talk and you don't feel, you get into a situation where you don't know how to solve problems and you continually repeat the same ineffectual rituals over and over again. The, under power, the healthy family does let the parents be parents and the children children. In other words, the the power in the family is not abdicated to the children. In the dysfunctional family, that family is ruled by the sickest member. The dysfunctional family is ruled by the sickest member. And all of the power is very rigid, and all of the people in the family are triangled into this dysfunctional power play. Under autonomy, the healthy family assumes that the children are going to grow up and they're going to move away and that the whole thing's going to change. So they're given the message that we love you and because we love you, it's all right for you to go. But in the dysfunctional family, the children feel trapped. They've never developed the ability to leave and stand alone. <clears throat> Fosters a tremendous amount of insecurity. In the healthy family, the emotions of love and joy and hope bond them together. In the dysfunctional family, that family is held together by pain, by fear, and by anger. The healthy family teaches how to solve problems, whereas the dysfunctional family, nothing ever gets solved until it's a crisis. Problems do not get solved when they're problems. Problems get conciliation and power plays when they become a crisis. And the chaos tends to be repeated over and over again. And, of course, that does not help the serenity of those involved. Under belief systems, the healthy family will have some type of system of values that is healthy, that helps that family meet certain crises. The dysfunctional family says one thing and does something else. We drove around here by St. John's Church coming into town last night, and it just brought up all these feelings of, you must go to church. 
So my mother would put the children in the car and take us to church and drop us out on the corner and come back and pick us up. The inconsistency of what we were being told and what was happening is difficult for a child to interpret, you see. The predictable consistency makes up a healthy family where in a dysfunctional family you have predictable inconsistency. So you begin to see what has been happening in this family interaction and how the children then are beginning to be pushed into certain roles of behavior and adaptation in order to survive. What are the basic needs of children? You can add anything to this list. Love, security, food and shelter, belonging, nurturing, value systems, discipline, safety, consistency. What would you add to this list as the needs for children? Do you realize that in a dysfunctional home that is affected by alcoholism, that children get none of those? Children get none of those in a dysfunctional family. What do you do when you're a child in that situation? How do you survive those kind of situations with the least amount of pain? We can begin to see different roles that the family either pushes this child into performing or that the child begins to realize by experimentation that if I do things this way, I'll be more comfortable in here. Survival mechanisms. And we really begin to look at some of the work that's been done and identifying these different roles Now, when we go through these, if you begin to see yourself in one of these roles, remember that these roles do change and overlap. And you begin to be able to see that maybe you played one or more of these different roles in the adaptation. The responsible one, the family hero. Well, this is the child in that family situation that is usually the only child or the oldest child. This is a child who comes into this situation and changes this relationship into a family. So this is a child that the parents have the greatest impact upon. And, of course, this is the child that's going to have the greatest impact on the subsequent children. (coughs) This is the child that continually receives the message of how to be good. How to be good. This is a child that is used so emotionally by the parents and becomes the mini-enabler. This is the child who obeys the rules, keeps all the negative feelings inside, and survives by being an overachiever and being responsible for everything in in their situation. This is the child, however, that begins to realize that nothing he does is ever good enough. I remember so often, you bring home report cards with three A's and a B, and 
you get the message that someone else in your class made four A's. Or you take the responsibility of doing something around the house that was not your job or you're not your chore. And you got criticism for doing it imperfectly or it was not noticed at all. You got the message that no matter what you did and no matter how hard you tried, it still wasn't right. Something was wrong. So what do you do? You try harder. You become very adept at planning and manipulating. But you see, the more you do, the harder you try, the more inadequate you feel inside. You feel guilty. I remember coming from that Episcopal church and lying in bed at night, reciting all of those Episcopal prayers. Forgive me of all the things I've done, and God, forgive me of all the things I haven't done. You know, and I used to lie there and wonder, what is it that's so terrible that I've done that I have to be in this state of guilt and and asking for all this uh, forgiveness? I was good. I've been taught how to be good. Why did I feel guilty? You become more rigid and perfectionistic and begin to develop whatever you can do well at the expense of many other things in your life. So as a, re- as a result, you're really not very much fun to be around because you never learn how to play until alcohol. <laughs> then you could play. Then you knew how to play. But you keep making these standards that you never can quite live up to. Okay, so we've got over here the dependent who is totally consumed with obtaining and using and self-centeredness and self-pity and, you know. And over here we have the the codependent who is totally consumed with what's going on in this other individual, someone outside of the self. And then you have here the little mini-enabler who's coming along as the little hero. And he's everything good. And then the other child comes into the family situation. You know, all he's got to look up to is this confusion that's going on out there. And an older sibling who is perfect and good, that's a lot to live up to. So this is the individual in this acting out role that begins to more typically portray what's going on in that family situation. And that's chaos. This is a child that begins to get some type of attention by negative behavior. This is a child that feels and acts on the hurt that's going on in the family. This is a child whose anger you see at what's going on in that family situation of not getting his individual needs met freezes and, and into this hostility and begins to be this mask that, that hides all these feelings of rejection and loneliness. The only way this child can get any attention is by acting out. Can't communicate. There's no one to talk to. No one has developed this child's self-image. And so he begins to gravitate to the peer groups, other dysfunctional acting out children of alcoholics, uh, where drugs and alcohol are the media. What does it, what does a little drug and a little marijuana and a little alcohol do for this individual? A lot. It does a lot. This is the child, because of its acting out, that is the only one in the family that is likely to receive help early. 
But this is the child, you see, who is less adequately prepared to step out into adult life. So this is the child that leaves home early. This is the child that leaves permanently. This is the child that commits suicide. The lost children are the adjuster. This is the child that simply survives by withdrawing. This is the child that can be sitting down in front of the television set while there is an actual physical battle going on in the home. Sitting down there in front of the television set, totally withdrawn from what's going on in this family situation. Calmly get up, walk out of the room, and leave. This is a child who also is getting none of its childhood needs met and begins to receive the message that, you know, here is the dependent one consuming with the self-pity. Here is the codependent who's consumed with the dependent. Here's the little mini-abler hero who is goody-two-shoes. And here's the acting-out one that the family's all focused on. Uh, if this kid would straighten up this family, be all right. This is the lost child. Nobody has time for this child, you see. So this child's survival mechanisms are to withdraw. This is a child that nobody ever expects anything from, so this is the child that never expects anything from himself. Has no experiences to take into adult life. Therefore, every time they in adult life they need to make some adaption, they don't have the tools to do it, and they feel embarrassed, ineffective, and humiliated. This child has no friends. Very, very poor low uh, self-worth because of years of just being ignored but accepts this loneliness and this worthlessness feeling as normal. This is the child that when they grow up, they are not noticed in school. This is the child when they grow up and you have your meeting and you come back after a break and you realize that someone is missing, but you don't remember who it is. You've been meeting now for six months on a weekly basis and you know somebody's missing but you don't know who it is. That's an adult child. They're never noticed. Then the placator of the family pet. You've got the dependent one, the codependent, the mini-enabler hero, the acting out, the lost child, and now another one comes into the family. This is the child then that gets overkill. This is the child who becomes overprotected, and this is the child that the over, over, older siblings and everything keep saying, everything's fine. Everything is fine. A child feels the pain, feels the hurt, feels the inconsistencies, and yet get, gets the message, everything's fine. This is the child, then, whose feelings are more easily hurt and begins to survive by trying to fix everything in the family. And oftentimes, fixing it with humor. This is the child who appears to be so warm and caring, but clowning and laughter become their tools. And here again, they're never 
really taken seriously and begin to um, to begin to discount their own needs. Now, because of their need to fix everything for mother and dad and older brother and sister and so forth, these are the ones that go into the caring professions. Now, it is, we'll get into this just in a minute, but because of this need to fix everything, these are the ones that are most likely to go into caretaking professions. But you can imagine, you see, my dilemma in growing up when I was the hero and also the pet because I found myself responsible for the way everybody felt and also responsible for everything that happened in the world, which is a pretty hard and heavy burden to bear. Now, as the child matures, most of these, uh, a very, very small percentage will begin to change. But most of us, you see, begin to bring these survival mechanisms over into our adult life. And it's the, the whole situation now of the child who has matured into adulthood, who is growing up as an adult with enormous emotional gaps and deficits. And their risk for in dysfunction increases every year because they are going to be forming relationships with other dysfunctional people and the, excuse me, the critical problem of learning the message that taking a drink will make you feel better because the, the risk of continuing the addiction process is very, very real. Adult life, then, the major characteristics that we bring over from these childhood experiences are delusion, denial, compulsive behavior, frozen feelings, low self-worth, and multiple medical problems. Now, what do we mean by denial? The groups that we are doing in Atlanta in my office right now, I would say that this is perhaps the number one area um, that is a, a barrier to change. Because I feel that, that we grow up with a situation that we do not know what normal is. And there is this tremendous protection, protection against further hurts that we build up that is very difficult to break through to get into any kind of recovery process for change. I recently had an opportunity <coughs> to see a cousin of mine that I had not seen in many years. And his father and my father were brothers, and both were very, very um, sick alcoholics, untreated alcoholics. And, of course, during that particular time, the word alcoholism had never been used. Um, and my cousin asked me what I was doing these days, and I told him that I just left Emory, that I was in private practice that I was doing some um, talking on adult children of alcoholism. I said, by the way, that's something that you would be very interested in. He said, why? <laughs> and I said, well, because your father was an alcoholic. He said, my father drank a lot, but he was not an alcoholic. <laughs> so the delusion and denial and long lapses of memory about what happened in our childhood. 
But you see, we begin to take on the characteristics of the dependent one anyway. Compulsions, delusions, self-pity, aggressive behavior, blaming others, becoming more dependent ourselves, not realizing that we have needs, and feeling so inconsistent, so insignificant, feeling that our feelings don't matter. Growing up with compulsive behavior, you see, you begin to receive that message over and over again that whatever you did, it was never good enough. So what is the obvious answer? You do more. You try harder. You need to feel that you're always in control, but you find yourself ending up overspending, overeating, over, you know, and... uh, (laughs) Um, over everything, over impulses, uh, overreacting to situations over which you have absolutely no control, not learning that you can make choices. You see, codependents are people who are stuck, and it's just as easy to be dishonest as it is to tell the truth when it doesn't matter. Now, I know none of you have experienced that. Uh, and the relationships that we form early on are never equal. We're always marrying somebody above us who has potential or somebody who is below us who sort of substantiates our low self-worth. But we tend to go into helping professions. Thank you. We begin to be high performers and low feelers, always need to be right, always need to be engaged in something important. If we don't, if we're not engaged in something important, or if we make a mistake, the world's gonna fall apart. You don't know how to have fun. You don't know how to to talk about real issues. You suffer from terminal seriousness. and become very uncomfortable with anything to do with frivolity. Frozen feelings. We don't learn how to talk, we don't learn how to feel, and we don't know how to trust. We begin to confuse love and pity. You begin to see how we go into caretaking professions. (coughs) We've lost the ability to feel and express our feelings because we receive the messages all along, that our feelings didn't matter. You're not supposed to feel that way. Or how can you feel that way when such and such? So if you begin to get the message that your feelings don't matter, then you interpret that as being, I don't matter. So the best way to survive is not to feel. How are you feeling? Just fine, thank you. How are you feeling? Very well, thank you. You just don't feel. And it's no wonder then that we're able to go into the caretaking professions. The thing that I want to bring out here is that I would venture a guess, and don't anybody stand up and ask me to give statistics about this, because I think the worst thing we do in this whole area of treatment is quote statistics and don't really have a lot to back them up with. Because there's no way to get honest 
statistics when you're asking uh, dishonest people questions. <laughs> but I would venture a guess that as many as 80% of people in the caring profession, physicians, counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, ministers, nurses, are probably codependents, adult children of alcoholism, who have never really received any treatment for their codependency. We have in our frozen feelings, of course, the low self-worth, feeling responsible for what other people feel, living life from the standpoint of helping others, and feeling guilty when you feel uh, assertive. Um, and I love to tell this little story because it always helps if you can quote the Bible a little bit, you know, then you begin to get a, a lot of people's attention. And I say, you know, it's really very spiritual when you're engaged in helping others. That's very true. Uh, because so many of the, the spiritual principles deal with helping others. And this is the, this is the rationalization that you get when you find somebody who's totally consumed with something outside of themselves. And so you just tell them a little story. Well, it seems to me that in the parable of Jesus taking care of the 5,000 by giving them food, in other words, Jesus is taking care of the multitude, what's the first thing he did? Fed himself first. And that, you see, because if we're taking care of others, at our own expense, then that's pathological. I feel that one thing about adult children is that they judge themselves harshly and without mercy. Unable to put themselves first, clinging to relationships, having loyalty to relationships when all of the evidence says, get out. Constantly seeking approval, inability to identify their own, their own needs, becoming more and more depressed, making unrealistic uh, goals, trying harder and harder and harder to make it work. And of course, the reason that I became so interested in this was because of my own individual recovery needs and the large number of people women that I see coming into my office with multiple medical problems. And it is absolutely enlightening for you in your own practices when you are dealing with a large list of medical problems to say, where is the addiction in your family? And the enlightenment that comes is, is beautiful to behold. Um, I feel that we need to point out, too, that it's pretty acceptable that if we have the male and the female who come together and they have the little hero and the little pet and the little uh, withdrawing child there or acting out child, that it's pretty acceptable that the older or oldest son has such an enormous capability of becoming alcoholic. But let's take the little pet over here, and she finds herself another little dysfunctional pet to marry, and they have two little mini pets, 
Well, you see, the, this second generation removed probably is more severely affected by this disease of codependency. But then when you start talking to them about change, my mother and father never took a drink. Is that normal? I mean, don't normal people take a drink every once in a while? You know, I ask them, why? So, you see, it's, it's not always an ability to, to key into actual addiction until you grit, really get down and look at the dysfunction in the family or the family dynamics. Now, this month's Alcoholism Journal has a pretty good article about just a survey of recovering people who start back drinking. Uh, recovering people who have relapses. And you know, basically, over the years I've been involved, we're coming up with just about the same statistics world around. A third of the people continue to drink. A third of the people play around with drinking. Maybe a third of the people become abstinent. And that's been pretty consistent as long as I, the 10 years I've been around. But what about those 33% of people who start drinking again? Or the 33 that never can really get a handle on stopping drinking? I honestly feel this. And I'm just throwing this out to challenge you in your recovery programs and in your personal life. If you have patients who are having difficulty staying sober, if you have patients that those patients that continue after six months of a beautiful program, go out and drink again. For God's sake, let's start looking at their own individual codependency. Now, I do not feel that the, the typical patient who is coming in for recovery therapy for an addiction problem, as we've heard Dr. Geller explain so beautifully this afternoon, need to be confronted with this type of information or these, this type of new information very early in recovery. I do not feel they need to be presented this very early in recovery unless it is surfacing and needs attention. So I think the awareness of what we're dealing with here is important and treating what needs to be treated at the time. Then after the individual tends to have a good handle on their addiction and their program, then lead them gently into uncovering some of these painful facts that are, deal, are dealt with in their own codependency issues. The solution I feel that is that insight is not curative. Insight is not curative. And what we are finding is, now see, I break this down into a difference between treatment and therapy. I feel that treatment is a one-on-one -on -one or one-on-a-few with a qualified therapist a qualified and experienced therapist who can do some actual individual treatment with this situation. Whereas therapy is your ongoing, continuing care or your 12-step groups. You see, we've had a lot of emphasis on this whole situation of adult children. And there has been some beautiful work done of bringing together some 12-step work with adult children groups. 
And what I have found is that we have a large number of people who are identifying with this as a problem, who are coming together because it's easy to identify that it's someone else's fault, and they're coming together and they're stirring up all of this pain and discomfort, and no one there has ever had any treatment. So they're opening up all of these surgical and emotional wounds, and they're going away and probably need a drink. Uh, the, the point is that I feel like we need to, we are doing some actual treatments in my office, some treatment classes, and there are a few people around the country who are doing some actual treatments. And you really start dealing with some very basic stuff in psychotherapy. But the key is what can you help that patient identify with that will be an entry point into change in their life. Once you have them in, then you do your basic work. You do your basic reconstruction. You do your basic psychotherapy. But you can't tell the president of a bank that he's sick and needs treatment and expect him to come in. Do you understand what I'm saying there? If we can find the key that will be an avenue for change, you might get this bank president to come in for treatment if you told him his father was an alcoholic. And it would be an entry point into change and maybe begin to start breaking this continuous cycle of rigid behavior over and over again. Very indebted to people like Claudia Black, Kathleen Brooks, Virginia Satir, Sharon Wexshire, Janet Wartitz, who have had some very successful books along these lines. Um, turn that off for me. I'll be glad to entertain any questions. Sorry we ran a few minutes over, but I get carried away with compulsive behavior from time to time. <laughs>